HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Leite Sue, host of Word of Mouth. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food live here on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Wides. So here's some friendly travel advice for you from your favorite neighborhood radio hosts. Don't go to Iceland in the winter. Just a little tip. Oh, I know. You're immediately going to say, like, well, uh, duh. I mean, that seems pretty obvious, right? I mean, who would go to Iceland in the winter? It's called Iceland, right? So it must be an ice-covered, frozen, tundra, arctic, circle, hell kind of place, right? Kind of like Boston is right about now, this winter. Hmm? I mean, why would you even consider going there anytime between September and April? Iceland, not Boston. Although, why go to Boston either? Who'd go to Iceland in the winter. Well, it turns out lots of people, pretty crowded, lots of people. And while it isn't like a Superman level fortress of solitude, ice palace kind of place, um, it apparently, so I've heard, can be really nice there in the winter. Really nice. My friend Joelle went a couple weeks ago and she said it was great, beautiful. And I had always wanted to go to Iceland. And so When a good deal came along in December, we decided to book it and go in February, thinking that that would be smart because the days would be slightly longer and the temps would be slightly warmer. And also February is supposed to be the best time and the best place in the world to see the northern lights in the winter. And that was something I've always wanted to do and see. So I booked a trip to go to Iceland the first week of February in the winter. 
And so that's what I figured would happen. We'd go to Iceland and we'd see the northern lights and it would be beautiful and this like amazing thing. And I, it would be, you know, this, I would be basking in this sparkling, crystalline, clear air nighttime with fantastical colors in the sky. And we would sit in these natural thermal hot springs in glinting sunlight by day and eat reindeer tartare at hip new Nordic cuisine hotspots and drink local beer with beer with friendly Scandinavian locals at night, right? Sounds great, doesn't it? Well, it didn't quite turn out that way, but I should have known because there were signs. There were signs, and I saw them. I saw the signs. Quote, ace of base. I saw them. Now, let me explain what happened. Sorry, I'm a little congested. So, yes, I booked a winter trip to Iceland, and yes, I knew the weather risks and the short hours of daylight would be a factor. Yes, 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 I know. Short hours of daylight, I know. I get it. I looked it all up. But I was okay with all of that because I like off-season travel because I don't really like people that much, and people tend to travel in season. And I like not being with so many people, and I like not spending a lot of money. And off-season travel is also cheaper, and I'm thrifty, and we've established that many times well before this. So we're going to back up a few weeks. We're going to back up a couple weeks to late January. Now, our trip has already been booked at this point for two months. I booked it in early December. The plan is set. The die is cast. The trip is set in stone. And remember that phrase, set in stone. Weather be damned, we're going. But the signs were there again. I saw the signs. I didn't heed them, but I saw the signs. If you can recognize the signs, but you don't heed the signs, then you're stupid because signs are there for a reason. But first, before we left for our trip, end of January, Adam, my husband, had made a plan. He had booked himself to go on a little trip to a model railroad expo in Springfield, Massachusetts, the last weekend in January. Now, he's into N-scale trains, and if you don't know anything about model railroads, I mean, who does? N-scale is the, the teeny tiny scale of train. Like, each train car of the train is, like, the size of, like, an adult man's finger, that size. And, like, if you put people in your N-scale, their heads have to be made from, like, poppy seeds. That's how small N-scale is. It's like a sixteenth of an inch to an inch, something like that. Really small. So Adam's into N-scale railroads these days, and that's okay. You know, everyone needs a hobby. And so he goes off to western Massachusetts to Springfield to spend the weekend with his nerdy old man train buddies, who I call the 60-year-old virgins. And, um, and I work all weekend. I'm booked, and I'm working all weekend, and everything's fine. That was the plan, but uh-oh! What's upon us? Oh, the biggest snowstorm about to hit New York City in the history of the world is coming. Snowmageddon to beat all snowmageddons is is bearing down on the East Coast. And oh, my God, it's going to be the end of the world. So he speeds home from his train meeting to beat the storm, makes it home just in time. I, in preparation, because what what do you do when a big storm is coming? You cook. I make lentil soup. And chicken soup in anticipation of days and days of endless snowbound weather. Like we're going to have snow up to the second story windows and we're all going to be trapped inside for days. According to Mayor de Blasio, who I really like, by the way, 
the end is near, reconcile with your God. At least that's how The Onion put it. There were news reports coming out of, of locked entrances and crowd control at places like Whole Foods and Trader Joe's. They couldn't even let people in anymore. It was so crowded. People were freaking out about starving through a New York storm without their you know, flaxseed tortilla chips and their almond milk because people were going to die if they didn't get their food. And the lines were going out the door and everything was shut down. But we were okay. Adam returns home, comes home thrilled with his train filled three days away walks into the apartment door drops off his bags everything is fine we're waiting for the storm to really get going to approach it didn't really it sort of fizzled as you know feeling smug in the fact that we had booked our upcoming trip to iceland for the following week not the week that was about to get wiped off the planet by the storm so we're feeling good about that good job by us Woo. Scored a point there. So we sit down for a nice hot bowl of my lentil soup that I had made. And Adam mentions that his throat's kind of scratchy. He's not feeling great. He thinks he's just dehydrated. There was so much train-related excitement, and he was so busy looking at all the tiny trains. He didn't drink enough water all weekend, and that's all it is. He's just dehydrated. Okay, that's all. And so we eat the soup. We're eating our lentil soup, and the lentil soup is good, and it's filling, and it's hearty like lentil soup should be, and we're eating it, and then all of a sudden, crunch. I almost, just almost, bite down really hard on a pebble. I didn't. I felt it as I was biting it, and I stopped. But I almost bit down on a pebble the night before the biggest storm in history is about to wipe the city off the face of the planet. Where are you going to find a dentist in New York in a blizzard, okay? Especially with my insurance. <clears throat> so you know how when you cook with dried lentils or dried beans, you're supposed to pick through them very carefully for pebbles and stones and other foreign debris? Um, guess who never does that? <laughs> yeah. So I guess I missed that one. Luckily, there was no tooth damage. But when I pulled that thing out of my mouth, it was a sharp, triangular-shaped gray rock, a pebble. In N-scale railroading landscapes, it could have been used as a boulder on a hillside. Okay, Crisis averted, but the signs, the signs were there. I saw the signs, and I ignored them. That was a close one. So no one's teeth gets broken, get broken. I've lost my ability to use grammar. No one's teeth break. We finished the lentil soup. We turn on the TV. We're just waiting for this big storm to come. Just waiting, 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 waiting. So we turn on PBS, and there's a nature show on about penguins at the South Pole. Oh, well, who doesn't love a good show about penguins? What is more cute than a penguin? So we're watching. Now, because at the South Pole, there are no trees or plants. They're in Antarctica. No trees, no plants. Lichen. The penguins there have adapted. Well, not adapted, because what they've always done, right? The penguins there build their nests out of pebbles, out of little rocks, they build their nests from pebbles because pebbles are what they have. It never occurred to them that they shouldn't build their nests out of pebbles because they don't have any straw or grass or leaves or bark or twigs. They just have pebbles. So what do they do? They build their nests out of pebbles. Very smart. Kind of Flintstonian in a way of them. They carry them up from the shore and they pile them into these beautiful nests in which they lay their eggs and hatch their eggs and raise their little baby penguins. And other male penguins will sometimes come around to try to steal their best pebbles, thus proving that animals are no different than us. But I'm fascinated by how they adapt their nests to their environment. I mean, who could sit on a nest 
of pebbles. How could the eggs not break from all the pebbles? All these questions arise as we're watching the Penguin Show about pebbles, and we discuss the pebbles. And the signs are there. The pebbles are the signs. Another pebble. The signs are there, and I ignore them. I saw the signs, and I ignored them. And so we finish dinner. There's no more pebbles in the soup. We're good. And Adam says his throat hurts more. And he's coughing now, and he's getting tired, and he takes his temperature, and oh, crap, he has a 102-degree fever. So he goes to bed, and I think, it's okay. We have exactly one week before we leave for Iceland. We'll be okay as long as, oh, I don't get sick. But don't even think about that, because that's not going to happen, because you can't think about that. We have a week. It's Monday. We leave the following Tuesday. We're okay. And he goes to bed, and he proceeds to spend the next five days in bed finally goes to the doctor on the third day you have the flu doctor says you have the flu but you should be okay for the trip in five days you should be okay just wait it out but now what 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 what's this now now he has severe abdominal pain so severe that he can't sleep or sit up or find a comfortable position in bed or eat or drink anything so severe that i think he's actually dying from this pain this pain is so bad. Calls the doctor's office late at night again. Whoever's on call calls him back. Dr. Patel. Dr. Patel over the phone diagnoses him as having a kidney stone. A kidney stone. More pebbles. Do you see this? Pebbles. Signs. More signs. We saw the signs. This one we couldn't ignore. He has a kidney stone. He has a pebble in his body. Formed by his body. But it should pass, Dr. Patel says. If he keeps drinking water, it'll pass. But drinking or eating anything makes the pain so much worse that he can't even stand up. He can't do anything. He spends the night shuffling around the apartment because all he can do is slowly shuffle because he's in so much pain. And he's a mess. And I think he's dying. But we both have terrible self-employed people's insurance with a $5,000 deductible and can't bear the idea of going to the ER or the misery of a New York City ER experience, which you don't ever want to do because going to the ER will kill you if what brings you to the ER didn't already kill you. But finally, by Saturday night, he endures this pain for five nights, and on Saturday night, it gets so bad. Saturday night, by the way, the night that I have to go back to work after not working for like four days, he decides it's time to go to the ER, and he goes to the ER, and they do a CT scan. No stone. There is no pebble inside of his body formed by his body. There's no stone inside of his body. There's no diagnosis. Nobody knows what's wrong with Adam. It's just Adam's weird body reacting to something, which it does sometimes. And they say he needs more tests, but they're not tests that they can do there at a major New York metropolitan hospital. He says, what do you mean you can't do the tests here? They said, well, we could do the tests in an emergency, but this isn't an emergency. You have to come back during the week. So he comes home. Now it's Sunday and we're leaving Tuesday night. His pain slowly starts to subside. He thinks, you know what, he'll be able to go. He'll be good. His flu is abating. His temperature is down. Things are looking better. He's feeling better. I'm thinking, all right, this is going to be good. We're going to be able to go. Everything's fine. I get a phone call. It's my mother from Florida. Bernice Kudish is dead. Who's Bernice Kudish? Bernice Kudish is a very, very old friend of my mom's. Practically like her sister. Someone who I've known 
who has known me since I was born, literally my whole life. Somebody who was very influential in my life about things like food and baking and spent a lot of time with me as a child and gave me her entire collection of Time Life Good Cook series books a few years ago when she moved into the nursing home when she finally got too old to take care of herself. Someone I was close with, like an aunt. Uh-oh. So is mom going to come up from Florida for the funeral? No. Too short notice. She doesn't want to. It's too cold. Okay, good. Should I go to the funeral? No, it's okay. They just want to keep it simple and small. So I don't go to the funeral. But I think about Bernice and I think about Jewish funerals. With Jewish funerals, there's no embalming. There's no viewing of the body. There's no makeup. There's no putting the body in their best clothes. You die within 24 hours. You're wrapped in a shroud. You're buried in a pine box. That's it. That's the way it should be. That's how Jews do it. And then at the funeral, all the mourners stand by the grave and they all put little pebbles on top of your grave to make sure that their beloved is securely buried and in the ground and everyone participates in the process. It's kind of beautiful that way. Everyone puts a pebble on the grave. Pebbles. More signs. The signs were there. I ignored them. So Adam's feeling better, and it's Monday morning. The day before, we're supposed to leave for Iceland, and I go into the city for a meeting. Oh, with my new agent, by the way. (laughs) drop that and I come home uh uh-oh and my throat's scratchy and we're now leaving in 30 hours and I feel hot and flushed and tired and I take a nap and then I take my temperature and I have 102 fever and now I have the flu so I go to bed first I call the travel company with whom I had booked the trip and no your trip is not refundable non-refundable non-transferable sorry didn't you buy the travel insurance um well no I didn't. Oh, well, it's too bad. It's set in stone, so to speak. Who buys travel insurance? I guess I do from now on. So I go to sleep and spend the all night shivering with fever and chills and sweating and wondering if I should get on a plane to go to Iceland the next day. And the next day I'm still sick, but Adam's better, but he's still in pain. And it's Tuesday morning. And if we're going to go to Iceland that night, we need to pack and we need to leave by 4.30 that afternoon. So we pack. We decide we're going to go and we pack. And I still have a fever and chills and no appetite and a headache and feel terrible. But we decide to go. We decide that we should get on a plane and I should infect everybody going to Iceland with the flu. Because, you know, that's what you do when you have a non-refundable ticket. And he feels well enough that he can sit for five hours. And so we go. We get on the plane and we fly overnight and we land in the dark at six o'clock in the morning. And we find the hotel in the dark and the wind and the rain and... We can't check in yet because it's 9 o'clock in the morning and the rooms aren't available until noon or maybe 2. And it's pitch black because the sun doesn't come up until 10 a.m. And the whole city of Reykjavik is covered in ice. Well, it is called Iceland. But apparently that's really unusual to be covered in ice. The whole city is covered in ice and slush and it's pitch black. And our hotel is a 20-minute walk from anything. And we're starving. And the breakfast buffet at the hotel is $30 a person. And it only starts being included in our package the next morning. And so we stumble into downtown Reykjavik and we find a place that has breakfast for $25, which apparently is pretty standard after all for Reykjavik because things are so expensive there because it's a tiny island and they have to import it all. And we think that we may actually be insane people. But we saw the signs and we ignored them. Now, the rest of the trip doesn't get much better than that. Certainly not worse. 
The weather is crappy. There's heavy cloud cover. There's fog and slush and wind like I've never felt wind before and rain and mud everywhere and it messes up our plans and we don't see the northern lights and we barely see the mountains and the waterfalls and the geysers are there somewhere in the fog and the rain and the wind and the clouds and the mud and the slush. We go there. I don't really remember seeing them that much and the food is okay but really expensive but I don't want to give the impression that Iceland is a bad place to go. Because I think that in the summer, it's probably an amazing place to go. And I probably should have done that. But in the winter, with the flu in the dark, maybe it's not the best choice. But the signs were there, and I ignored them. Oh, and the entire place is made of rock. So as soon as the sun comes up at 10 o'clock in the morning, I start to notice it. There's no grass. Well, there's a little grass, but not really much grass. But there's rock everywhere. The highway medians are piles of lava rock. The landscape is just hardened lava crust. It's rock everywhere you go. The whole place is one giant volcano, basically. I mean, it's an island. It's a giant volcano made up of 100 little giant volcanoes, which is really cool and fascinating. Again, if you could see anything, and I didn't have the flu, and all the sidewalks and roads aren't covered in ice... Which only lasted the first day, by the way. And then it melted off overnight in the endless rain. And I notice after the ice melts, or as it's melting, that on the slippery sidewalks and paths, instead of sand or salt, like we randomly toss here with great abandon, instead of that, they throw crushed lava rock everywhere. Little black crushed up pieces of lava rock. Little pebbles more pebbles. Pebbles everywhere. Pebbles all over the ground. Pebbles stuck in the ridges of my boots. Pebbles tracked into our hotel room. Pebbles stuck in my feet. Pebbles everywhere. And there are very few trees, of course, which makes sense because it's a volcanic island and not much dirt for them to grow in, but so much rock. So much rock. And if it were sunny and dry and I didn't have a fever, it probably would have been really beautiful. But I didn't heed the signs. And they were there. Okay, we're going to take a very short break. And when we come back, a little less about Iceland. Boy 92 remix of Creek Time by Odetta Hartman. This is HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. Welcome back to Let's Get Real. Cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food here on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Weitz. Recently returned from Iceland. 
in the dark. <clears throat> but that's enough about Iceland. I mean, I, I don't want to complain. I got to go to Iceland. Talk about first world problems. Oh, my trip to Iceland oh, wasn't good in the winter. Oh, wah, wah. Okay, enough about that. It's enough about our trip, at least. But, oh, I did taste the famous fermented shark, which, of course, is the first thing everybody says. Did you go to the hot springs? Did you taste the fermented shark? Um, no and yes. We didn't go to the hot springs because the weather was too bad. Did I taste the fermented shark? Uh, yes, I was fed a centimeter square piece of it, which I bit into and spit out. Yeah. Because, yes, I agree with Tony Bourdain on this one. Fermented shark is the worst thing that I've ever eaten, hands down. Worst thing I've ever put in my mouth. And I taught at a culinary school for 15 years. I put a lot of bad shit in my mouth. Worst thing I've ever eaten. Even worse than natto. Japanese fermented natto. Which I, up until now, had given the title of worst thing I'd ever eaten. But fermented shark beats natto. Now I'm done telling you the woeful, woeful tale of our ill-fated trip to Iceland. Because who cares? Really, you don't care. And what I really want to discuss are rocks and pebbles and stones. Because the signs were there. Remember? All the pebbles right from the start. In the lentil soup, in Adam's kidney, but not. All over the place. The rocks and the pebbles were there. None of which are anything that we eat. We don't eat rocks or pebbles or stones except for salt. Because they say salt is the only rock we eat. It's a mineral. It can be mined from the sea. I don't know if we can call it a rock, but that's kind of cool to say. What's the only rock we eat? Salt. I guess that's true. I did see the signs about the pebbles, like I said, in the soup, in the misdiagnosed kidney, in the penguin neighborhood. And yes, of course, there are pebbles we eat. There are fruity pebbles and there are cocoa pebbles and we eat those pebbles. But those are process manufactured foodiness versions of rocks. Not the real pure rocks that I'm looking for when I'm eating. If I'm going to eat a rock, I want it to be real. I don't want it to be flavored with artificial fruitiness. Okay? I want my pebbles real. Not fake fruitiness, foodiness, or chocolatey flavor. I want my rocks to taste like rocks or pebbles. I mean, damn it, foodiness. You even get into the most basic levels of our food. Into our rocks. Into our pebbles. Now, when we got home <clears throat> Sunday night from our ill-fated trip to a near-empty fridge, I thought, we have to eat something. I just spent so much freaking money on not very much good food in Iceland. I'm not going out and buying anything tonight. So I got to make something. There's got to be something to be made in this refrigerator. This is a typical American home. There's plenty of food. You just can't see it. And then I remembered Stone Soup. Do you remember that book? It was a children's book called Stone Soup. Stone Soup was a story of three, I guess they were soldiers, travelers, musketeers, these three guys who go wandering around, and I think they were soldiers, and they come to a town, and they're hungry, and they're looking for food, and the cheap-ass inbred townspeople don't want to give them anything to eat. So they con the cheap-ass townspeople by telling them that they're going to make soup out of a stone. Oh, but first they need some wood for a fire. Okay, someone gives them wood for a fire because they're intrigued. Then they say, oh, if we, and they make a pot, they put a pot on the fire and they put a stone in it and they add water and they start heating it up. Oh, if we only had just like an onion, 
one onion. It would be so much better. And some rube who's all excited about stone soup runs off and brings them some onions. And then they say, oh, if we only had, you know, a little piece of meat for the soup and some other bumpkin goes home and slaughters his lamb and brings back the meat. And they put that in the pot to make the soup and on and on and on until all the suckers in town have been conned into giving them all of this food, which they put in the pot and they make this totally awesome soup that everybody eats. But technically, it's only made from a stone stone soup and this is also a very good argument for why we need universal basic educational standards in this country too because that level of gullibility across the board is unacceptable okay so i made stone soup minus the stones because i had had enough of those for a while but i had an old shriveled up onion and a few wilty carrots and a pack of frozen raw chicken wings in my freezer and some canned beans and some canned tomatoes. And it's amazing how much you can not starve to death in America if you just eat what's actually in your kitchen pantry and don't go out and buy food every time you want it. Think about that. The next time a superstorm is predicted and everyone's rushing out to buy their frozen diet pizza tacos and their Coke with stevia, if we really had to feed ourselves in an emergency, I think we could live for months off of what's in our pantries. So I made awesome stone soup that night, and we're still eating it two days later because it's delicious. Because we've all become so soft and so dependent on that never-ending supply of fresh and packaged food that's always there for us. We never question that it might disappear or fear the end of it. No more bananas at Trader Joe's tonight, which actually happened last night at my Trader Joe's, which happens on Sunday nights. They run out of bananas. It's a weird thing. But don't worry. The truck will be here with the sunrise at 7 a.m. Not um, 10 a.m. like somewhere else I just came back from where it's dark until 10. Yeah. <clears throat> Out of your omega-3 enhanced extra calcium orange juice at home this morning? Don't worry. Stop by the gas station on your way to work. They sell juice and eggs and packs of hot dogs and sports drinks and donuts. All the major food groups are there. Who needs a supermarket? But what if they weren't? What if they all went away? What if a giant volcano erupted and cut off all the shipping and freight here like what happened in Iceland a few years ago when a volcano, whatever it's called, erupted? Remember that? Sent a massive plume of ash into the air, covered Europe, stopped air travel in Europe for two weeks. Two weeks. Now, Iceland is a small country, but they grow a lot of their own food in their greenhouses that are powered with their abundant and endless geothermal energy that comes from all the volcanic activity, which I know because part of our trip was visiting the power plant, which was actually pretty interesting. But they also have to import a lot of their stuff because they're so small and have no dirt. They were starting to panic during that couple-of-week period. They're a tiny island with only 300,000-odd people. They had reason to panic. But we produce a ton of our food, a ton and a ton, tons of our own food. But it's so centralized now that all of it is shipping dependent. And we have almost a half billion in population these days. What if we do get the superstorm of the millennium, the one that knocks out power and highways for weeks at a time? Are you ready? Are you prepared? Can you make stone soup? It doesn't hurt to be prepared, right? Now, a few years ago, I went to a hiking spa in Utah. Yeah, I know. Don't ask. Run by Mormons. Mormons are big doomsday preppers, it turns out. Did you know that? They all have their garages filled with these huge five-gallon buckets filled with emergency food. Grains and beans and pancake mix. Just
tons of it. And at first I thought that was just the supplies for the spa, but then I realized that it was doomsday prepping for families with, you know, 8 to 17 kids on average. You can buy a whole year supply of that stuff online. I looked it up. Even Costco. If you go to Costco.com, they sell year's supply of doomsday prepper food. That's like what they call it. And you can keep it in your garage or in your basement. But here in New York, we don't really have room to store all of that. We don't have garages and basements. And we're so cocky that we don't plan for doomsday very much, really. Well, I would. I mean, I keep like a couple of six packs of canned beans around at all time because it doesn't hurt, right? I mean, I'd stock up if I were you on beans and lentils, too, especially the lentils. Just make sure you check them for pebbles first because, you know, the signs are there, right? The signs are going to get you. And after the apocalypse comes, it's going to be hard to find a dentist if you happen to bite into a pebble in your lentil, especially one that takes my terrible insurance. Oh, we're out of time. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Let's Get Real. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Jack in the Control Room. I'm back from Iceland. It was a very interesting experience, I must say. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. That's it. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.